Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in John chapter 1. In this audio, I'm going to cover verses 35 through 51, which describes Jesus making his first disciples. The previous audio discussed Jesus identif- uh, John the Baptist identifying Jesus as the Messiah. That was in John 1 verses 29 through 34. So now we're shifting from John the Baptist's ministry to Jesus' ministry. And we'll start in verses 35 and 39. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples when he saw Jesus passing by. He said, look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, what are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and you'll see. He replied, so they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about 10 in the morning, says the Holman Christian Study Bible. Actually, that was 4 in the afternoon, according to Gill and Clark. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Now, who? The first of all, the next day. It's the next day after John saw Jesus coming. That We saw that in the last audio, actually. He was coming in verse in verse. 29 in chapter 1, the next day John saw Jesus coming, and so that was after the commission from the Sanhedrin came. So the commission from the Sanhedrin came on one day, then Jesus came, and and John said, Jesus is the Lamb of God. That was in the next day, and then the next day after that, John is standing with two of his disciples. So there's a rough idea of the time frame here. Now, who were the two disciples? One was Andrew. We know that because verse 40 tells us. Let me drop down and read verse 40. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. All right, so Andrew was one, no doubt. The other one is not mentioned. It's speculated quite reasonably, I believe, that the other disciple standing there was John the Apostle, the author of this book, who was very modest, never mentions his name in the book, in the gospel. So that's probably who that was. So we'll say Andrew and the unknown disciple just to be conservative about it. They were standing there. Jesus passed by and said, Look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, What are you looking for? Now, Jesus was not asking for information. He was just trying to get them to talk. They were probably very diffident, very shy, as they followed the Son of God, you know, who had just been singled out by John the Baptist as the Messiah. So they're going to be a little bit reticent probably. And Jesus is encouraging them. He says, What are you looking for? And they said rabbi, which means teacher. You notice John likes to translate words. Translates rabbi here for teacher. That's for the benefit of the Greek readers who don't understand the Hebrew rabbi. And they ask him, where are you staying? Now, this seems like a strange thing to ask the the teacher, the rabbi. Where are you staying? What's your 1020? I mean, come on. What's the point of that? Well, first of all, let's look at this time phrase 10 in the morning. It might make more sense. 10 in the morning. Actually, the Greek says the 10th hour. Well, if you use the Roman time system which started at 12 o'clock at night or 12 o'clock in the morning which is in the middle of the night then 10 10 the 10th hour would be 10 in the morning but if you use the jewish system which started at 6 in the morning if you add 10 hours to 6 in the morning you end up at 4 in the afternoon from 6 to noon is 6 hours and then 4 more hours is 10 hours that's 4 in the afternoon now if it's 4 in the afternoon and jesus asked Andrew and probably John, what do you want? 
they probably were going to try to suggest to him that they wanted to be his disciples, but that was not something that you just jump into real quickly here, especially as it's getting dark and it was on a public road. They might have wanted to talk to him privately and they wanted to have more time. So that's why they asked where they were staying so that they were hinting at very broadly that they wanted to stay with Jesus so they could talk about why they were there. They wanted to be his disciples. So Jesus is very accommodating. Verse 39, he says, come and you'll see, he replied. And so they went and stayed where he was staying. This is still at Bethany beyond the Jordan, which I need to mention here. Most people traditionally have said it's about four or five miles north of where the Jordan River runs into the Dead Sea, just east of the Jordan River, right outside of Jerusalem. D.A. Carson says that it's Batania, Bethany behind the Jordan. Sounds like Batania, which is the Roman province where the Old Old Testament place of Bashan was, area of Bashan, which is a good deal east, north and east of the or east of the Sea of Galilee and north from the traditional spot for Bethany beyond the Jordan. Now, I'm going to take the traditional spot just because I, I just I'm going to. It doesn't really matter, but the point is, is that somewhere around there is where they stayed that night as they were preparing the next day, as Jesus was preparing to go back to Galilee, probably back to Capernaum, which is where he, he established his his early Galilean ministry. So now we move to John 1 verses 40 through 42. Andrew, he was one of those two that was standing there with John the Baptist when they saw Jesus walk by, and he was one of the two that spent the night with Jesus. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. That's not followed John. The him there is capitalized in H. Holman Christian Study Bible. It means who heard John and followed Jesus. Followed Jesus. It's a little bit confusing when you read it. Verse 41, he first found his own brother Simon. This is Andrew, found his own brother Simon. They were both from Bethsaida. Bethsaida. Simon and Andrew were down there, either over there in Batania or down there at Bethany beyond the Jordan, observing all of John the Baptist's activity. And I've often asked myself, what were they doing down there? I suspect they were down there just because they were seeking spiritual truth, and John the Baptist sounded like he might be the Messiah. So they left their fishing up in Capernaum and headed down or headed over to Bethany beyond the Jordan to see what was going on. But anyway, Andrew was there, spent the night with Jesus. Then he found his brother Simon the next day and said, we have found the Messiah. And again, as I said, John likes to translate these Hebrew words. Messiah means anointed one in Greek, Christos in Greek, anointed in English. We have found the anointed one, of course. They have no idea what the Messiah is except the current Jewish Conceptions of the Messiah, which was a political leader who was going to set up a political kingdom and was going to set Israel free from the Roman Empire, it was going to be full of glory, and there was going to be peace and justice and all that kind of stuff. But they didn't know all of the what Jesus had in mind for his Messiahship, but they just figured that, hey, he's the Messiah. They took John the Baptist's word for it. 42, and he, Andrew, brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, he said, you are Simon, son of John. First of all, how did he know that? Well, he could have just been introduced by Andrew. That's my speculation. John Gill says he was, it was supernaturally revealed to him. It could have been. In fact, it might have been. John Gill always says that, though, whenever there's something that could naturally be explained, he always says it's something divine. I don't know here, but at any rate, Jesus said, you are Simon, son of John. That was his given name by his mama. And Father, Simon, son of John, you will be called, Jesus continues, Simon, you will be called Cephas. And again, John translates the Aramaic in this case, uh, Cephas, which he translates it back into 
Greek, Petros, which in English is rock. So Peter, by the way, is Petros, is rock, that's the Greek. Cephas is the Aramaic, and Simon was his Aramaic given name. So there's Simon's got, Simon Peter's got three names, Simon, Peter, and Cephas. Now, why was he called a rock? Why did Jesus say that? Well, Jesus is prophesying about Peter. He was looking forward to what Peter would become, as the NIV study Bible says. He was a rock in the early church. If you read the book of Acts, you'll see that Peter is very prominent there in the early goings of the early church, as the NIV study Bible points out. But the NIV study Bible further points out he was anything but a rock before Jesus died and rose again. Of course, he denied Jesus three times. He's famous for that, but we won't remember the bad things. We'll remember the good things. He was a rock. Yes, he was impulsive. Yes, he was unstable during his earthly career as a disciple. But once that Holy Spirit fell on him at Pentecost, he was a ball of fire. And of course, the reference to rock comes up again later when Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, and 19, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, and I take that to be the Peter's previous confession that Jesus was the Messiah, I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. And I don't think, this is the famous Catholic verse, I don't think he was referring to Peter as being the first pope. He was married. All, no, uh-uh. He, this is referring to the fact that Peter, representing the apostles, had the ability to do church discipline. That's what the keys, that's what the rabbinic expression, keys of the kingdom, meant is discipline in the synagogue. And so Peter was going to have Peter, and also his fellow apostles would have the right to discipline the early church. But at any rate, he was a rock there, and that was an example. Uh, Jesus predicted it of him as soon as he called him, and then he reminded him of it again when he was saying, look, Peter, you're going to be very strong in the establishment of my church. Now in verse 40, let me read that again. It says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him and followed Jesus. Her, I should have mentioned this earlier. Heard John say what? Heard John say that Jesus is the Lamb of God. John Gill says that, and I think he's, of course, right. Now let's make a little application point about the fact that Andrew brought Jesus to, Andrew brought his brother Simon to Jesus. This is what John Gill and Adam Clark say. When grace finds one, the first impulse is to spread the news. I'll paraphrase them a little bit. When grace finds one, the first impulse is to spread the news. And that really is true. I mean, there's so many Christians that are scared to death to open their mouth about how they've been saved by Jesus, and that is just despicable. If you're one of those guys, don't do that anymore. Spread the news. Andrew uh, Jameson Fawcett Brown is said to be older than Peter, although I have no idea how Jameson Fawcett Brown know this. I'll take their word for it, not that it really matters. We now turn to verses 43 and 44 and 45 in John chapter 1. The next day, he, Jesus, decided to leave for Galilee. This is the next day after Andrew and probably John spent the night with him. He decides to leave for Galilee. Jesus found Philip and told him, follow me. Now, where was Philip when he was found? He could have been found there while they were still in Bethany beyond the Jordan. Or it could have been that he could have been found on the road back up to Galilee, back up to Capernaum, I'm assuming, where they're going. Or he could have been found once they got to Capernaum or wherever they were going in Galilee. 
All right, so now we've got Andrew, probably John found, and Simon Peter is the disciple now. That's three disciples, and now the Philip's number four. Jesus, direct, in fact, Philip's the only person that Jesus directly called. The other two found Jesus. Jesus found Philip. The rest of it was either by the recommendation of John the Baptist, Andrew, and probably John, or by the recommendation of Andrew. That's how Simon got called. But now Jesus found Philip directly and says, follow me. Verse 44, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. And I suspect that's how he was around to get called by Jesus. He knew Andrew and Peter because they were homeboys. Now Bethsaida, if you look at the map, is on the northwest shore or near the northwest, excuse me, near the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum was just a couple of miles away on the north, northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And of course, we know that Peter and Andrew lived in Capernaum and that Jesus ended up ministering in Capernaum. And we know that Peter and Peter's mother-in-law lived in Capernaum. They operated out of that house, which is very close to the Bethsaida. Bethsaida being the hometown of Andrew and Peter. So Bethsaida has three apostles from it, Philip, Andrew, and Peter. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and told him. Now, Nathanael wasn't in Bethsaida. He wasn't in Capernaum. He was in Cana, which was just due west of Magdala, which is kind of on the central western coast of the Sea of Galilee, so southwest of Capernaum, but still in Galilee. We know he was from Cana because John, in a, future, in a later verse, says he's from Cana, calls him, says Nathanael. Nathaniel is from Cana. John 21, verse 2. Simon Peter, Thomas, called twin. Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee. So we know that Nathaniel is from Cana, and so that's probably where Philip went and found him. Perhaps they were friends. I don't know. Philip found Nathaniel and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Now, notice that Philip assumed that Nathaniel knew the law pretty good. So this is kind of an exception to the general generalization that the apostles were ignorant fishermen. Apparently, apparently Philip knew the law because, because Philip just assumed he would know who the one that Moses wrote about, the Messiah, and that the prophets wrote about. Now, cutting against that idea is the fact that there were a lot of people that knew the general basic idea of who the Messiah was, so maybe Nathaniel wasn't that learned in the law. So I, this is a minor point, and I don't want to press it too hard. But, it, but there's another people also point out that Jesus mentioned, I saw you under the fig tree. And under the fig tree is where people like to sit and read and study. So the idea is Nathaniel's a student. He's studying the Bible when Jesus saw him under the fig tree. But at any rate, Philip found him and says, we found the one. Well, who is this one that Moses wrote about? And when did Moses write about him? Well, Moses wrote about the prophet, Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 and 18. And, of course, uh, so did the prophets. Uh, Philip continues to tell Nathaniel, the prophets wrote about Jesus too. Well, where was that? Well, that could be Isaiah 7, 14, the virgin shall conceive, the suffering servant passages in Isaiah, and Isaiah, what is it, 52 and 53, I think it is. You got Micah's prophecy in, about Jesus being born in Bethlehem and Micah 5 too. So that could, you know, that's just a typical, there's lots of Messianic prophecies. Psalm 22, the, the my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Messianic Psalms. There's lots of places in the Old Testament prophesied Jesus, and apparently Philip and Nathaniel both knew about him. So Philip identifies the Messiah, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Now, the fact that he says he's the son of Joseph does not mean that Jesus, that Philip was denying the virgin birth. 
He might not even known about the virgin birth at this time. He just did what most people did. He said, he's the son of the father, and the father, the stepfather, was Joseph from Nazareth. That's how Jesus was known at the time. He was the son of Joseph. All right, so uh, let's, let's talk a little bit more about Nathaniel since he's been found in Cana. He's also identified with Bartholomew. Many people think he is. I think he is myself. John Gill mentions the reason why is because Bartholomew, Bartholomew and Philip are always mentioned together in accounts of the apostles. You always see them together. Adam Clark gives three reasons why they're the same person. The evangelists who mention Bartholomew say nothing of Nathaniel. And St. John speaks of Nathaniel, but he says nothing of Bartholomew. In other words, you don't see Bartholomew and Nathaniel mentioned together at the same place, which makes it look like the writers are just using different names for the same person. Another argument that Clark uses is that the name Bartholomew is really not a proper name. It means, literally, the son of Ptolemy. And so if a gospel writer refers to Bartholomew, he's saying he's the son of Ptolemy, but he doesn't really mention his name. Nathaniel might have been his given name, so they were two different names. So that sounds pretty good to me. So we're going to assume Bartholomew and 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 Nathaniel and Nathaniel are the same person. Now notice that Philip says that Jesus was from Nazareth, as Philip tells Nathaniel who the Messiah is. He says he's from Nazareth. Now of course Nazareth is where Jesus grew up, but that's not where he was born. And we're going to see later that that is probably going to cause a lot of trouble in in Nathaniel's mind about saying the Messiah came from Nazareth. We will see that in the next verse. But before we get there, let's go back and talk a little bit more about the Philip who went from the Philip from Bethsaida, who went probably from Capernaum to Cana to get to Nathaniel to make him be a disciple. Let's talk about him a little bit more. Church history says he was the one who first had to go bury his father before following Jesus. I don't know why that's said to be in church history, but Adam Clark mentions that. That's not scriptural. That's just a speculation. This Philip from Bethsaida, one of the original apostles of Jesus, he's not to be confounded with Philip the deacon mentioned in Acts 6.5. Let me read that. The proposal pleased the whole company, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicolaus, a proselyte from Antioch. These are the guys that were chosen to to parcel out the food between the Hellenistic and the Hebrewistic Jews there in Acts 6. Sometimes they're called deacons, even though that word deacon is not in the original text. I've already mentioned that Philip was the first one who was expressly called by Jesus. The other ones were, called, were recommended uh, to Jesus by somebody else. And before we go to the next verse, I want to mention also that Philip was from Bethsaida, but that's probably where he, Andrew, and Simon Peter were born. They seem to have lived at Capernaum. Mark 1.29 says this, As they left the synagogue, they went into Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. So we know that Simon and Andrew had moved to Capernaum. Philip probably did too. All right. Now let's go back to Philip talking to Nathaniel, slash, also known as Bartholomew, in Cana. I'm assuming he's in Cana. That's an assumption. This is what this is how Nathaniel answers Philip. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Remember, Philip had just said, The Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph from Nazareth, and Nathaniel says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathaniel asked him, Come and see. Philip answered. There was something about Jesus' presence. You just look at him, hey, he's the Messiah. 
Now, that's an overstatement, of course. These people were looking for spiritual truth, and they had their eyes open and their hearts open. A lot of people looked at Jesus and didn't see Messiah at all. They saw blasphemer and heretic and all that. But these guys, they, they, they had their hearts open eventually. Now, of course, Nathaniel at first was showing some hesitation. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Why would he stumble over that? Well, the first obvious reason is that Nathaniel, assuming he knows the Bible, the law pretty good, Micah 5.2, in, in those Hebrew scriptures, says this, Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. What will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me? For me being for God. His origin is from antiquity, from eternity. Well, that's messianic, and the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem, and you just told me, Philip, that the Messiah comes from Nazareth? So why should I come believe you? Why should I come follow you to see this Messiah that you're talking about? We also see in Matthew 2, verses 4 through 6, this is, Herod the, this is concerning Herod the Great. So he, Herod the Great, assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. Verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And then they quote Micah, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, because out of you you will become will come a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. So the scribes and the Pharisees telling Herod, Herod's trying to find out where the Messiah is so he can kill him. And the scribes say he's coming from, he's coming to Bethlehem, coming from Bethlehem. So that could be the first reason that Philip choked. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathaniel says to Philip, because oh, anything good, the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem, not Nazareth. Or it could be that Nazareth was such a dump and the people there were so nasty that Philip just couldn't believe that the Messiah would come from such a nasty place. Now remember, the Galileans were looked down on by the good folks down in Jerusalem. They were looked down on as hicks and rednecks, I guess, if you to use modern terminology. And he's already, but he himself is from Galilee. Canaan's in Galilee. So here we have a Galilean looking down on the Nazarenes. So Nazareth was so bad, even a Galilean could look down on, on Nazareth. So it was such a dump that even Nazareth's fellow Galileans despise it. John Gill points that out. Also, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The, Nazareth? the people in Nazareth were nasty. Remember, they tried to throw Jesus off a cliff one time just because he hadn't done as many miracles there as he had done elsewhere. So I've driven through Nazareth, and I will tell you, not in a car. I was on a, on a tour bus, I think it was. But I remember driving down that road, and I said, oh, no wonder people thought this place was a dump. I mean, it was a dump. That was a, I also noticed the cliff where they tried to throw Jesus over. The, the town is on the side of a hill. The third thing I noticed was there was a Hardee's there. I said, great, the place where Jesus grew up has a Hardee's hamburger joint. It's amazing. But anyway, Philip says, look, quit worrying about Nazareth. Come and see. Come and see. This is the best way he probably thought to overcome Nathaniel's prejudice. Come look at him yourself, and you'll see that he's the one we've been looking for. Adam Clark puts it this way, he who candidly examines the evidences of the religion of Christ will infallibly, be, infallibly become a believer. No history ever published among men has so many external and internal proofs of authenticity as this has. And that's absolutely true. The problem is, is that people, because of their sin and their hard-heartedness, won't take the time to look at the evidence. They just shut it out. I remember on an apologetics YouTube video some hotshot atheist professor or woman in some university was challenged about something simple about the gospel. How do you explain this? And she goes, blah, 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 blah. It's obvious she never had read the gospel. She didn't know a thing about it. 
Imagine her atheist, agnostic, liberal fellow professors never bothered to challenge her about the truth of the gospel. We don't need to be ashamed about how strong the evidence is that Jesus is the Son of God. Just read the gospels, read the apologetic literature. It's overwhelming. Just come look at Jesus and you'll believe. If you don't want to look at Jesus, if you want to die in your sins and your prejudices, well, then don't look at Jesus. But if you come and see, you'll see who he is. Verses 47 and 49 in John chapter 1. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him. I'm assuming this is after Philip fetched him from Cana, came back to Capernaum. Jesus sees Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, Here is a true Israelite. No deceit in him. Notice that Jesus knew the difference between a true Israelite and a false Israelite. He was getting ready to, well, he probably knew already about the false Israelites, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the nasty people down there that were going to eventually kill him and who had spent their whole career, these same, their ancestors had spent their whole career blooding up Jerusalem with the blood of the prophets. But there was a true Israelite, the one who was really called by God. And so Jesus said, this is him. There's no deceit in him. Now, this is supernatural, of course. Jesus just met him. How did he know there was no deceit in him unless it was supernatural? Verse 48, how do you know me? Nathanael asked, before Philip called you, Jesus responds. Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Now, this has to be supernatural. How else could Jesus have seen him? It was supernatural enough to convince Nathanael, despite his reticence about Jesus being from Nazareth. Nathanael says in verse 49, Rabbi, Nathanael replied, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, Jesus saw Nathanael under a fig tree. Why was Nathanael under a fig tree? Well, this was a favorite place for study and prayer in hot weather. So that's probably why Jesus knew that he was a true Israelite with no deceit. He was, he was the real deal. And as I say, if he was studying, this would tend to indicate that not all the disciples were ignorant fishermen. At least Nathanael knew something about the scripture. It had to have been done in private because otherwise Nathanael would not have been astounded when he found out that Jesus knew about it. He's probably thinking, how did you know I was reading under a tree? I was doing that by myself. And you, and you knew about it? Nathanael, in his enthusiasm, responds, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Well, king of Israel is the same thing as the Messiah. In fact, the two terms are equated in Mark. Mark chapter 15, verse 32. Let the Messiah comma, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross. These are the people mocking, mocking Jesus. So that we may see and believe, even those who were crucified with him were taunting him. So the people down there were taunting Jesus, and they said, the Messiah, the king of Israel. So in the, in the common uh, notion, in the common conception, Messiah and king of Israel, the term meant the same thing, in common parlance. He also said, Nathaniel also said he's the son of God, and as I've said in a previous, the son of, as I've said earlier, the Son of God means he was the Son of God, not by creation, but, but, but in his essence. There was never a time when he was not in existence and then was born like a human son is born. There never was a time when he was not, but he was eternally with the Father. So it's not referring to the generation of a son from a father, but the metaphor refers to the fact that a son carries the same genetic characteristics of his father, and likewise Jesus has the same divine characteristics of his father, and therefore he is divine just like God is, therefore he is the son of God. So Nathaniel is basically saying, you are God. You are the Messiah. Messiah. The son of God denotes Jesus' person. The king of Israel denotes his office, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown point out. Now, I will have to say again that even though he recognizes him as the Messiah, that term Messiah hadn't been fleshed out in the disciples' minds yet. I'm sure they're still having the same 
typical Jewish conceptions of the Messiah as an earthly glorious kingdom with a glorious earthly king with a white horse with attendants and soldiers surrounding him and glory and trumpets blowing at his presence and all of that. And we're going to get rid of these nasty Romans. <laughs> so let's take up the last two verses in John 1 and we'll be finished with this audio. Jesus responded to him, responded to Nathaniel. Do you believe only because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? Now, Jesus is probably trying to con compliment Nathaniel here. Wow, you believe pretty easy. Just I saw you under the fig tree and you believe already? That was no, no big deal. Not even, that's not any big deal for me. Because you, Nathaniel, will see greater things than this. Now, what are those greater things? Well, all the miracles, all the teaching, all the prophecy, all the stuff that happens in the next three and a half years in Jesus' ministry, and Nathaniel was going to be right there because he was a disciple of Jesus. All the demon exorcisms, everything. Verse 51, Then he, Jesus, said, I assure you, referring to Nathaniel, I assure you, Nathaniel, you, Nathaniel, will see heaven opened and the angels of God descending and as ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, this is a little bit of an enigmatic verse. It used to cause me some trouble. I don't think that Jesus was referring to a time, literally, when Philip was going to see this. He's, and I think he's referring to Jacob's ladder. Let me re read you that in Genesis 28:12. And he, Jacob, dreamed a stairway was set on the ground with its top reaching heaven, and God's angels were going up and down on it. Well, that Jacob's ladder is a symbol of connection between heaven and earth. Angels going up, angels going down, angels are messenger. Angelos means messenger. So angels going up and angels going down. Communication coming from heaven down to Jacob. And Jacob can send his request and his communications and prayers back up to heaven. So it talks about communication between earth and heaven. And so I think that what he's saying is you're going to see me, the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, Nathaniel, you, you, Nathaniel you're going to see me, the Son of Man. I'm going to be right in touch with heaven. There's not going to be any blockage between me and heaven. The NIV Study Bible puts it this way. This phrase marks Jesus as God's elect one through which redemption comes to the world. John Gill puts it this way. Quote, such miracles would be wrought by him in continuation, in confirmation of it. I don't know what Gill is referring to there. Such miracles would be wrought by him that it would look as if heaven was open and the angels of God were continually going to and fro and bringing fresh messages and performing miraculous operations as if the whole host of them were constantly employed in such services. So not only that, Gil has the idea to what I just said about messages going up and down, but also service going up and down, help for Jesus, miraculous operations for Jesus. You need a miracle done, an angel come do it for Jesus. That's a lot more than Jesus just seeing Nathaniel under a fig tree. Adam Clark says this, quote, A perpetual intercourse should now be opened between heaven and earth through the medium of Christ. And that's kind of what I think it is, is the communication between heaven and earth because of those angels, angels being messengers. And I don't think it happened literally because I don't think that we, don't, we I mean, we'll, I guess it could refer to some kind of vision that Nathaniel had, but we don't have that recorded anywhere. You would think something that big would be recorded. Gill and Clark take it to be figurative and not literal, and I do too. The Son of Man would have the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So Jesus uses this term of him. This is a ter messianic term. It comes from Daniel 7, 13, and 14. It's used everywhere in the Gospels. I think it's about 90 plus times. Nobody except Stephen uses it. Stephen when he was being stoned. 
in Acts 7, no, except for that one case, nobody else ever uses this term of Jesus. He uses it of himself. It was obviously a messianic term because in Daniel, the Son of Man received a kingdom, received a kingdom that was going to last forever. And, of course, that would be Jesus. I could go on about that, but this audio, well, I got a little bit of time. Let me go on and talk about the Son of Man. Daniel, this is the only time in the Old Testament was in Daniel 7, 13, and 14, and that, that messianic phrase there. The phrase is the, the Son of Man was a Persian term, and, and Daniel's working for the Persian Empire. And in Persia, the phrase meant royalty, it meant heir to royalty, heir to a kingdom. So when Daniel used the term, it was a messianic term, not a messianic, excuse me, it was a, a term showing that somebody was about to inherit a kingdom, so it fits perfectly with Jesus. When Daniel used the term, the term was functionally equivalent to saying that one was like a son of man, that one like a son of man is a rightful heir and accessor to the divine throne. Let me actually read the passage. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. This is in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. There is the kingdom. Jesus is the king of Israel. The kingdom is coming. So that's where the term son of man comes from. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm finished with John chapter 1. This particular section of John 1 was verses 35 through 51. Jesus chooses his first disciples. We've got Andrew and probably John chosen. We've got Simon Peter chosen. We've got Philip chosen. And we've got Nathaniel chosen. Nathaniel, also known as Bartholomew, chosen. We will continue next audio, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Three days later, after the final choosing, after the choosing of these disciples, Jesus does his first miracle at Cana. I hope you enjoyed this audio, and I hope you listen to the next one.